Okay, so yeah, it, I mean, we've struggled to get this this interview going for so long, um, oh. <laughs> but you know, it's really an important conversation we're going to have. And I'm not quite a baby boomer, but it's uh, you know, this impacts everybody. You know, especially anybody over sixty. The whole question of um, you know, long-term care and community and purpose, that's all relevant right now. And, uh, and I guess my question to you is, since the publication of your book, have you heard of whether or not the book impacted, and, you know, the several conversations and stories you've written about this issue has an impact policy on the government level? Um, interesting question. And I think in a sense, okay, you asked me about the government level. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure that it has on the government level actually changed policy. Yeah. I do. Oh, and I, I, I have to say that I don't want to sound self-aggrandizing I think that changes are all, there's a mix of people and in professions who have been pushing forward and trying to create um, similar change in with, within the long-term care industry, so to speak. And, and so I think my book is part of that. So I think it has um, certainly helped inform conversations. And I know from speaking to people in the field, that it is possibly has inspired some to create change and inspired conversa conversations in other ways. And certainly, um, if you look at, for example, the new, new um, Canada's new national long-term care standards, they're also talking about uh, very similar um, points of view. And again, this is a mix of people who've done some great work in the area. So. I don't want to be, you know, claiming uh, credit for for their hard work as well. But I think there's a there's a an awakening um, that has gone on um, probably since um, well for a very long time. But certainly in Ontario, um, the conversation was sort of elevated in a sense by the Toronto Star's 2018 piece on the Regional Appeals decision to move forward and transform the way it provided care in one dementia household in, in one home. And since then, a lot of people have been talking about these ideas and different approaches. And actually, I will say um, that the City of Toronto credited that story um, for the changes that they made to uh, some of the uh, dementia households in their long-term care home. And they created their own um, version of a program that focused on the individual interests of the residents and um, upheld um, the people who work in the homes as well. So there's been um, a really sort of um, significant shift in thinking. And has that changed actual uh, regulations? I'm, I'm, I think we have a way to go before that really happens. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think before we, we go further, can you explain 
what the UK butterfly effect model is. Yes, it is. It is one of a number of different approaches, but it was the one that Peel Region chose to start with. And so that just happened to be what I wrote about because that is what Peel chose. So it was created um, in um, the United Kingdom. And what they do is they come in and they start training behind the scenes with staff and they try to get the workers to um, to empathize with the people in their care and to really understand what they may be going through and understand that the condition of Alzheimer's or various different forms of cognitive decline often leave people um, they're living in the moment or living in moments uh, from their past. And sometimes those moments might be traumatic moments. Sometimes they might be very happy moments. And, and so they're trying to engage staff so that they can meet the individual resident where they are at that time and connect with them and, and help them. And, and the other piece of that is um, that they find ways to help people live in the moment and feel purpose within their lives. All of these, these philosophies in homes do something very similar, to be honest with you. They're, they're very, very similar in, in that approach, just in putting the, um, or attempting to put the um, individual interests of each person first or to give opportunities to feel like they have a meaningful lives, um, hopefully to help them connect with nature and the outdoors, um, hopefully to help them live in smaller households, which seem more natural and, and instead of big institutional settings to either within a long-term care home, create physically a smaller household, which is what the butterfly program did at Peel region or such as the greenhouse program, the greenhouse model actually build smaller homes in communities where people live with maybe 10 other people and um, have like a, a big kind of um, dining room area that for shared family meals and a big fireplace and then a really fabulous kitchen as a focal point. <laughs> um, so, so the goal is to make life more natural. Yeah. And in your book, you mentioned that, you know, with all these new models coming out and, you know, the the trend towards, you know, um, inclusivity, community, all that good intentions, right? That the good intentions itself doesn't lead to policy change. Because, it, you know, the, the medical model is, is, uh, is what drives, you know, the policy in these long-term care homes. Yes, the traditionally the, um, the institutional model, which is very medicalized, yeah. um, has been the prevailing um, um, uh, model of care, and that's how people have been living. That is slowly, incrementally try, starting to change. Although it is a struggle, I know from speaking within the industry, who are pe people who are creating um, different households, just the way I described, no matter what the program is are still um, sometimes coming up against um, 
ministry, I'm talking about Ontario, for example, ministry inspectors who say you cannot have a toaster on the counter. So, you know, the women can come in and in three o'clock in the afternoon and make uh, toast and marmalade jam for themselves. You cannot do that. That's a danger. And so what's happened is um, it's very frustrating for the workers who are actually trying to create change and make life more normal for people. Um, and on the other hand, some inspectors in other regions have no problem with that. So there really is, um, I think, a need for the ministry in general to take another look at its approach. And I know some of those changes are slowly underway, although I don't have a lot of details on if if that will result in anything profound. But um, there is, um, I, I think, overall in the industry, people are now talking about these ideas um, in, in a more natural way with some attempts to bring them into a, sort of a, a legitimate new approach. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's um, interesting, you know, because, you know, when I think about it and I and I know, you know, a few few friends that their parents are of the age where they are considering um, long term care or else even just taking care of them at home, like the exhaustion that goes with taking care of a person that's elderly because it requires so much. And I think as as the children, you know, the adult children taking care of their elderly parents, they have with the way they are, the, um, I guess, the baggage of being raised by that parent, right? You know, so, so sometimes in as much as you want to be compassionate with your elderly pa- parent, some of the things that they do they they tend to you know they tend to make that a challenge and i was talking to a friend of mine whose parents are 80 and 90 90s and she was saying you know initially at some point you know she was feeling that her mother was just being obstinate because that's just the way she is and she was refusing to do the things that she needed to do to get better. You know, she had broken her hip and she needed to stand. And this person worked in the medical field. So she knew, you know, you got to get, you know, the elderly person moving and feeling that they are in control a little bit of their their situation. But her mom just withdrew and wouldn't wouldn't do it you know, refused to stand up and just kept saying, oh, I, you know, you can't, I can't do it. I just simply can't do it. And so that was weighing on her patience because she knew she could do it. <laughs> you know, So that's, that's, I think that's the issue in terms of, you know, how we take care of our parent. And also, you know, and, and that's, yeah, and we're related to them and we want their best intention. You know, we, we want their best, right? We want them to be comfortable. We want them to be, you know, exercise some independence. But when they're in the long-term care, they're being cared for by strangers, essentially. And I think one of the common thing that was throughout your book is, 
is the, you know, the, I guess the caregivers in these institutions, they often, because they're busy there as well and they're understaffed, they ignore the person. And sometimes the, I don't know if you call them patients, but they're, the uh, I don't know what they call what they're called in in the long term care residents, um, residents. Yeah, and so they're just ignored, and really all they want is to be recognized and to be talked to, right? Like human. Yes, that's so sad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And you know, and I think about my mother when she she wasn't in a long term residence. But she was on the floor of a medical hospital that they kept long-term patients in. And I remember some of the things they would do with her, which seemed a little bit um, crazy, you know, like funny, fun. But I always looked at my mom as this matriarch, really head of the household, and then have her drawing little turkey things, you know, I just didn't know whether she felt that was demeaning or if she, she felt it was fun, but also she had a language barrier, right? Because she only spoke the indigenous language. And so I think that, and I was quite interested. And when I read that, you know, as elderly people became old, they would revert to their first language, you know, and, um, and sometimes that would make it probably more difficult for the caregiver if they're speaking something other than English um, to to get, you know, messages and communication would, would kind of be towards, you know, um, because they weren't speaking the same language. Yes, and that's a, a lot of people who have cognitive decline often um, revert your right to their original language and so I do recall being in a home in Toronto and a woman was sitting there um she had gone she was in her chair she had gone to the so-called nurses station which is usually in an, a more institutional style of home and the worker was sitting there um inputting data into the computer which he's he or she would be they, they're all required to do every hour and was trying to speak with him, but she was speaking in Portuguese and he kept saying, speak English, speak English. And it was just, she kept speaking in Portuguese because that is her language. Now she, it's in a, it's in a, um, a unit, so to speak, where people with cognitive decline. So it's obvious why she was doing that. And he was just too busy, um, filling in this, you know, required, um, input for, um, the data system was for the ministry and um, for whatever reason did not recognize her need to some way communicate with him. And and that's that's really sad. I, I do think that some homes are starting to recognize those changes, although um, you're not going to have a worker, you know, on staff at every time that can is that can speak multiple languages. So there are challenges around that. But the goal in a lot of homes increasingly is to focus on certain cultures so that you do have more people who understand the language, workers who are from that culture, um, or an appreciation for 
the food, um, the language, and the customs. And that makes a significant difference. Imagine having cognitive decline and perhaps you're afraid of something and there's nobody who can speak with you, nobody who can communicate with you. That's, that's, imagine how terrifying that would be for a person. Yeah, that would definitely make it, you know, because some elderly people have issues of trust, like especially if there's a, you know, a mental decline, there's trust issues. And if you can't speak, communicate is essential in not feeling lonely. And, you know, in these homes, if you're not able to communicate, then you are lonely. Yeah. And, and you're lonely for many reasons. Even if you can communicate in a sense, um, you're still often just left to sit by yourself. And, and I will say that when I started going to the Peel Region Home as, as the process was underway to, um, as they would say, transform their care, uh, the first number of months was mostly behind the scenes training. And so I um, didn't see much um, change there at all. And I was working with a Toronto Star videographer and there wasn't a lot to really shoot. Well, what we thought at the time should be showing change, but we were able to um, photograph and videotape the lives of the people currently living there. And so this home would be considered a really good home. It was a municipal home. So there would be a few more staff or a few more staff hours and staff would probably be paid a little bit more than some others would be. But really what I saw was neglect, it was emotional neglect. So, you know, people were cared for, they were fed and so on, but they spent most of their days sitting in front of a TV, staring at the floor. And what happens is people, because they're human beings, they get bored if they're just left to sit in a chair and stare at a television set or stare at the floor. And so um, they start acting out and so on. And frankly, who among us would would um, behave in and, in, you know, would be very happy if we were just sort of left to sit somewhere for hours and hours every day, you know, for the remaining years of our lives? Not very pleasant. And so... Yeah. And so, so that was kind of what I saw was even though it was, and they admitted this um, as well, because um, it's part of the story, but they recognized later that it was emotional neglect. Now that changed over time because of the way the program came in. Um, and I will say that for all of these programs or philosophies, they can disappear very quickly. Um, back into the institutional approach unless the leadership is very committed. So it's one thing to create change. It's another thing to make it consistent and part of your culture. And the way that the, at least in Ontario, the industry or the, the it is, is set up now is still with such a strong focus on the institutional approach. You have to be really um, a, a, a good, powerful leader to keep moving forward and advancing in, in a, this different approach. What would it take to standardize care, you know, so that, you know, best practices are put into place? Like, what would it take to 
compel the government. And, and I don't even know, like, like are the private residents better? Um, no, a lot of, well, a lot of people would argue that the privately owned homes are not better, at least during the pandemic. Um, the star, my colleagues at the star did stories that spoke about, um, you know, uh, higher numbers of, um, uh, COVID infections or deaths. Now, some of that has changed because a lot of people were in ward rooms where there were four to a room. So it just spread through. But so that's one topic. But, um, I, I think that there is a real need for more not-for-profit homes in Ontario. Right now, there are more for-profit homes, and some of them are trying, and some of them are implementing uh, the Butterfly Program. And um, I know Jarlette Health is one that is doing that, and they're north of um, the GTA, so they're in smaller communities, more towards northern Ontario. and they've been implementing butterfly in their homes. Um, so what would it take? Well, for example, long-term care, if you look at the health system, long-term care is sort of on the bottom tier, so to speak. And that's, um, that's how some people feel, should I say. There, there's no official um, rating of, of these institutions, but a lot of people would feel that they're sort of neglected in a sense. Um, but hospitals carry a lot of weight. And I'll give you an example. Uh, William Osler Health System has implemented, again, Butterfly, because it's in Peel Region, in one of their dementia units in a hospital. And so hospital doctors, hospital staff have spoken publicly. And, and one of my colleagues at the Star did a story on this, about the impact of, of that program on the residents and how it was much more calming the so-called behaviors where people become uh, full of anxiety or aggressive. Um, the hospital said that those had diminished because they were busier and calmer. And um, the staff were more, um, had more time to spend with people because they weren't spending time trying to calm down someone um, because people were living, so to speak, happier lives. Um, they have more time to actually just be with people. And so the staff were happier as well. So I think when you start to see it spread from long-term care to hospitals that um, a lot of people would feel may carry more weight or more influence within the health system, perhaps that's a bit of a boost to that. But if you're looking at the long-term care ministry, which is separate from the Ministry of Health in Ontario, then there still needs to be um, a, a recognition or an awareness that, for example, um, some options for happier living or more freedom um, should sh could easily be um, utilized. For example, toasters, making toasters available. Um, when, I, when, when I was in the Netherlands for my book research, there were people there who were in um, a place called Dehogovic, which is a little sort of enclosed village, so to speak, with tiny households of six or seven people. The households are all connected, but they're very small. And they had a lot of freedom to come and go. And there wasn't this horrible fear of risk. And, and in Canada, certainly, we have this very risk-adverse um, approach to long-term care and which just takes the life out of everything. So if you can't make um, 
you know, some toast um, in, in the afternoon, then what can you really do? Right. So it's, it's cases like that. I'm just using that sort of as a metaphor for a lot of different um, things that people are not allowed to do because somebody is, um, well, because the ministry is, is very concerned about risk basically. Right. Yeah. Liability. Yeah. And it, and it's probably complicated because of the medication that these residents are put on. It could be. Um, certainly, again, these homes report. And frankly, we need more independent studies on this as well. But a lot of the homes report that when people live with um, more purpose, more connection with staff, um, you know, when staff are able to sit and speak with them and develop actual relationships with them, when they can go outside and spend time sitting in the sun or just walking outdoors, that the need for medication um, declines. And in part, a lot of times people are medicated because of, they have these so-called behaviors. But many, many geriatricians would argue that the behaviors exist because people are left basically to sit in chairs and are kind of locked into a unit and and have no freedom of movement and no real reason to live. So they become aggressive. And, and so it's sort of a vicious circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can see that. And it's, I mean, and you can look at just humanity, you know, like if, you know, you don't have to be an uh, elderly person, but just as a human person, if you go out and are able to get some sunlight and do some walking and just have that freedom, you're happier, right? And so I feel that you know, when a person is in residence in a long-term or elderly care home, they have to be, well, restricted because otherwise you have chaos if you have them wandering everywhere and getting lost and possibly harming themselves. Um, so those things are put in place to well, for liability for the for the the residents, but also taking care of the the uh, resident, you know, elderly pa person. And I'm not sure. Like as I thought about it, you know, and I've had a about it a year or so to think about this and your book. And as the the youngest person in my family, and I'm seeing all my siblings you know, experience some of these, you know, cognitive decline, uh, physical decline, and I know where it's heading, you know, and I'm going to have to be, you know, looking at, you know, where are they going to be placed, you know, as they end up, end off their life. And it's really, it's disheartening, you know, because you do kind of feel uh, disempowered because on one hand, you know, it's for the safety of their safety. On the other hand, it's counter to their mental health and joy and purpose in life to be kind of locked away. It is 100%. And I think the, the balance is 
for example, um, there's a geriatrician who his name is Dr. Alan Power, and he has um, worked in many long-term care homes and came to the realization that since the majority of people living in long-term care have some form of cognitive decline, why are we locking up people in the memory care units? So they literally have to stay in this one smallish space, maybe 30 people or depending on the design of the home and stay there forever. And they cannot go out. The doors are absolutely locked. They cannot leave. So why not open the doors to all of those units and let people walk freely and explore the home? And, you know, they still can't leave through the front doors to go out onto this public street, but they have a lot more space and freedom of movement within the home. And so that's one approach. And some other approaches are looking at ways to um, create a community where you can come and go. Um, you can go outside. Your, um, there will be safety outside, but there, there are ways to keep people um, safe if they go for walks. And, and I'll give you an example, and this may be um, a really extreme example, but there was a, a home that I visited in uh, North Carolina, and it was a retirement home. So it was a place where a lot of people moved um, when they were 65 and then aged in place. And among those people, many, many of them, um, or at least some, developed um, cognitive decline. And it was built on um, many, many acres um, in a forested area. And it was beautiful. There were these huge soaring oak trees. And there was um, a really strong belief in the community, and it came from the leadership, that the people with cognitive decline had every right to be there and every right to be part of the community, and that the people who did not have cognitive decline um, needed to accept them if they wanted to live there and, and were actually sort of trained to um, support them. And so there was this one story of a gentleman who was older and he had pretty uh, significant cognitive decline, but he was still, um, he was still walking and um, he would get up every day and go for about an hour long walk. And there were volunteers who would walk behind him to make sure that he was okay. And he would walk around sort of the perimeter of this space and then come back and um, report on what he saw to the, the woman who ran the home. And I remember she said to me, imagine if he was in a locked memory unit. Um, like he would, she, basically he would have been aggressive or he would have been drugged. But because he was able to be out in nature and, but he was safe because there were people with him, um, then he had this, you know, this, this freedom. He was outdoors. He had fresh air. He had vitamin D. <laughs> he had it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, um, one of the things that I, I didn't see in the book, but do some of these homes have dogs or animals? I know there's one that had birds and you could hear the birds, you know, chirping in the morning. And that always probably gives people a little joy. But how about the other dogs? Like, I mean, other animals like dogs or cats? Yes, that well, that home also had a number of dogs and cats as well, and a guinea pig. Um, 
some homes had visiting dogs and some did not, as I saw. So it was a mix. I, I, I mean, I, I think pets are great for people. So especially, you know, the, the right pet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree that, that there could be more of that. Certainly. Yeah. Because they could even, you know, if there was, um, you know, like a service dog, you know, it could lower anxiety and other things, right? For, for, uh, residents. Like, like yes. you say, if it's the right pet, right? <laughs> I mean, it has to be a specific kind of pet. So what, what I wanted to ask you for, for some time is that if money were not an issue, what would be the three priorities that these long-term care homes should have? Mm, interesting. Well, can I expand that a little bit? Oh, definitely. Okay. So if money was not an issue, and if we defined long-term care as nursing homes, retirement homes, and living in the community, then that's a whole different approach um, to the way that older adults would live. And it's certainly an approach that matches the desires of older adults based on a number of different surveys and studies. And so I think, first of all, people would like to live in their homes. And mm, Dr. Samir Sinha uh, from Sinai Health talks about aging in the right place. So maybe if I, you know, spend my life with my family in a huge home in central Etobicoke, maybe if I'm living on my own and I'm 96, that might not be the right place for me, but maybe living in a condominium in what would be called a NORC or naturally occurring retirement community that has built-in supports from social connections to um, health services and nutrition services and so on, which is something I've written about is very common in New York City. And we're seeing more of the early version of that, more of the, so the social version of that starting up in Canada and Ontario. Um, that could be a great way for the government to put money into those kinds of services where you are able to scale up services that help people remain independent and socially connected. And you're doing it in a community of hundreds of people where they all live in, you know, a cluster of condo buildings or a neighborhood with a lot of older adults. So that's one option to help people remain in the community and not in institutions. Another option is small households. And I mentioned uh, the greenhouse model in the United States. And I've written about that. And that was in the video that I did in my 2018 piece with the Toronto Star on Peel Regions change. And we went down to a greenhouse home in Rochester. And these are beautiful homes, as mentioned earlier, with about 10 people. And they're built in the community. So if that's what appeals to you, that's a lovely way to live. So you have just a small group of people. You eat dinner at a long table together. It's a very sort of slow moving, gentle approach to life. 
and you have workers who are consistently um, there for you. You're, you're working with or you're living with and being cared for by the same people constantly instead of a stream of new faces and nobody has really any idea who you are or your life history. And so that's, that is potentially a game changer. However, you know, if you look at Ontario real estate um, prices, it's expensive. So um, there's a big question of how one could manage that. And there are other investments that governments could spend, which they are starting to do on more, they call um, campuses of care. So you would have um, a long-term care nursing home. You might have a retirement home attached to that. You would have a community pool and workout center and a library and maybe a school built on the same grounds. And so you're, the, the nursing home is part of a mix of people and it's multi-generational um, and it's much more interesting that way. And I know Trent University is building, it's um, part of discussions for building a home with a company called People Care on their university grounds. And then there would be people studying um, in the university would also, so young people would be coming into the home and working with the residents there and lots of access to nature and so on and trails on the grounds. And so all there are a lot of different options out there if um, the governments are willing to spend money and, and also enable these new philosophies uh, to to help people live in a more natural way as well. Yeah, and and you you mentioned multi generational. I know you know when you look at the blue zone areas, that the key component in terms of their elderly people in the community is is that is that is having a multi you know generational access to children teenagers, babies, you know what I mean? So that it it's kind of inclusive. And it, and so, you know, that kind of uh, leads me to my next question, and which is how do these institutions ignite purpose for their residents? That's a good question. Some don't. And among those who do, they, what they would do, um, many different ways of doing it. So first of all, if they're really good, they would get a really in-depth history of the individual. And some people will come in with significant cognitive decline. So it's complex, but they would have hopefully family members or friends who can talk about their careers their interests and so on. And, and and so sometimes it's little things, it's moments as opposed to giving someone a brand new career, so to speak, um, who's, who's living in the home. So I'll give an example of some of the moments. During the pandemic, uh, there was a woman who lived in a different region of Peel nursing home, and she had been a fashionista throughout her life. She, she I think she was worked in the industry she loved beautiful clothes and she also loved men and she was very lonely and depressed because every every all the homes were locked down during the pandemic so what one of the managers did was she got one of those um like so make like a dressmaker's dummy 
mm. and brought it in. And she went and bought through like the, you know, a secondhand store, some really pretty dresses, including a wedding dress. And, and then had the woman pick out which dress would appear on the dummy that day or that week. And, and then the staff would help follow the woman's directions. So the woman would style this. She was a, a stylist that day. <laughs> and other times, um, the, the manager invited in, um, different workers, I guess from Peel region, the head office to come down and have tea with her. And so, and they were men. So these guys, young guys would come down and they'd have tea with this woman and chat with her. And she loved it. She, you know, and, and they liked it too. They, they learned as well. So it was, you know, a, a nice and, and bit of multi-generational connections as well. And a good understanding for them also about people with cognitive decline and how they're not just finished. They're, they're still human beings with desires and interests and conversations. Yeah. And um, so that was, that was a, a lovely example of something in other cases. So when I was in the Sherbrooke Community Center in Saskatoon, they actually had an artist in residence who had a beautiful dog, by the way. And she would come in every day and people would paint. They had an art room and there were people who came. Um, there was a nurse. I wrote about her and she had fairly significant cognitive decline when she arrived. She had never painted in her life or really done any kind of creative work and discovered that she had talent. And so some of her paintings were um, appeared at local art galleries and then in like some uh, uh, associations or industry sort of events uh, around uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. And so she had this new sort of ex creative expression for herself, which was uh, very fulfilling for her. And the same home, um, speaking of multicultural, had an elementary school on their grounds and, and within the building actually. And so a couple of the residents used to be teachers and they would come and teach the students, help interact with these students and found a, a new sense of purpose in life that way. So there's, it's just, it's, it's as creative as you want it to be, as long as you're connecting with the innate interests of the individual. Yeah. I, I really like that the story that you wrote of the elderly woman that was taken with the, I think there was renovations going on. So there's construction people coming in to renovate. And one of the men felt a little bit uneasy, but then when it was explained to him that, well, she's 90, but she still thinks she's, you know, 40 or 50 and she's just flirting, you know, like just because she didn't see herself as a 90-year-old woman. And so he spent time with her talking to her. And and that really kind of helped, you know, just the relationship to be seen, right? Yes. And that was Inga. And she was another fashionista. She would wear leather pants and beautiful um, beautiful jewelry and blouses. And yes, she took a, quite a liking to this one particular young man. And what, when the manager explained to him, as you just noted, um, it, it changed his mindset. And so they, they did spend some time chatting and, and it, was, it was very nice. She quite enjoyed that. It's encouraging. You know, when I was reading some of those stories that it really is encouraging 
these moments that you captured in your book, you know, just showing a light on the humanity and and how that re- how that kind of makes you know the progress of living in these homes. It take it takes a break of like the negativity or you know the the negative uh, prognosis of what's going on, right? And uh, and I I think there was also another person that what did she say when she went into the elders home something like she was living into her destiny or something i can't remember that how you coined it um i'm trying to think of what that example was i'm well it was kind of this person going into an elder's residence and as she's going into it oh that was my mother Oh, that was your mother. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yes, that's right. They they had lived on their own for the longest time. Yeah. And my mother was very proud of that. And but but she had fallen a couple of times and falls. She was 90. And falls are not good for older adults. And I wish she had lifted weights through her life to help her <laughs> with that, with the bone density, but if if it can help. But uh, she sort of, they, they moved to a retirement home and she kind of marched gaily through the doors and like, I'm, I'm meeting my destiny, she said. She had, had a bit of a gallows humor, my mother. So <laughs> it was, it was, it was uh, she was pretty funny. Well, so. it, it does help to have that, <laughs> to have humor, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it sure does. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're coming up, we're coming up, you know, towards the end of our, interview and so if there's anything that I haven't brought up or you might have thought as we were talking that you want to bring up we have a couple minutes yeah I think you did an excellent job of asking questions so thank you so much it was so interesting speaking with you um I I just I, I really do think and you've already touched upon this many times but just the fact that people are people and many of us will end up with cognitive decline and it's always progressive. It always moves forward, but there's a lot of joy to be had if we're treated in a way that enables our humanity. And I think families feel better. Certainly the residents feel better and the staff feel better as well when they're in conditions that enable that to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it, like I say, you know, it does kind of give you hope. And what gives me hope, I have a sister that has, um, I don't know what type of dementia, like short-term memory loss. And she was recently put into a long-term care and, you know, and it's, and you mentioned this in in your book as well you know when when you have this decline you also lose some of your you know your swallowing swallowing um reflexes mm-hmm. and i think this is i talked to her one week before and then i talked to her subsequently you know a couple of weeks later and she could hardly talk 
And I think what happened was while she was being fed or when she was, or maybe she was eating on her own, the food went down the wrong way and ended up, you know, in her lungs. And, and then she couldn't talk anymore. Like she's, she has such difficulty talking now. I don't know if it's from that incident or if it's just the progressive decline that's, that her reflexes in her throat are, are diminishing. Mm -hmm. It's, I'm, I'm not a doctor and qualified to comment on that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It could be be either. Yeah. But it's, it's just, you know, just a cautionary thing to, you know, they, they need to be in these residents cognizant of the fact that, you know, sometimes in, you know, when they're having these, cognitive declines that it could mean, you know, if they're losing bodily functions that maybe their swallowing is also being impacted. And just to be more mindful of that, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. and that's why, you know, the the slower, more gentle approach, which is sort of the antithesis of what the current system demands, because people are so rushed, but you know, enabling someone to eat slowly, if you have to help them eating, um, makes a big difference for them instead of like trying to rush and put food in their mouth in a spoon. I'm not suggesting that happen with your sister, but certainly it it um, it benefits the resident if the worker doesn't feel so pressured just to move on to the next person. So all these little, little moments of time um, add up to have a significant impact on the lives of the people living there. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that, um, you know, as, as we, you know, get to the end of our call that, you know, we, we need to think about, and, you know, as an individual, like if you, if you know people in, in these care homes to, to be aware, you know, and also making more of an effort, you know, to be an advocate because oftentimes the the, pe- the residents don't have somebody advocating for them. Um, for example, my sister, uh, my niece, you know, would bring her clothes home to wash and bring her back some new clothes, but then her clothes started going missing. And so my niece was saying, well, maybe I shouldn't be bringing her any new clothes and maybe I should be bringing her old clothes, which is just the reverse of what you want to be doing, right? Because you want them to feel human and you don't want to dress them in rags. But, you know, how do you reconcile those that, you know, from clothes being stolen and still wanting your relative to to feel like they're human and they're they can dress up it's so true and uh pat armstrong uh, from york university has written about that the that um clothing is so important in long-term care and and food is so important like they're those simple little things in life but you know, if I'm if I end up in a home, I'm going to want my favorite clothes with me. And if they go missing, that would be very upsetting. And so these are the things, and this is about respect for people as well. 
um, you know, ensuring that the laundry does a good job of, first of all, caring for the clothes and ensuring that they get back to their rightful owners. So it's just every little piece of the system matters so much. But your your niece is right. It's um, it's 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 really too bad when that happens. Yeah. It- and and you're right. I mean, there's if you have a favorite outfit or a favorite something, and if it goes missing, and you're and you have a, a tendency to get anxiety or distrust, it just amplifies those feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, yeah, absolutely. It just you know, it's just another struggle, yet another struggle. Yeah. Well, I think we're really at the end. We're getting, um, well, we're a little bit over, but um, that's okay. So any more, like, you know, words of wisdom from your, I mean, you've written on this several times. Is there anything in the last year that you've become aware of that you just want to mention? Well, I think that if families or people listening, um, I, I think that more people understand what these new philosophies and approaches, um, what what they stand for, what they're about, what they can do. It's increasingly known. So I think that families should start asking questions. This, this is no longer... Um, some rare occurrence that happens somewhere, we're now widely talking about these ideas. And so homes are aware of them and families have a right to say, why aren't you doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to push for change. And, and, you know, that's, it's going to take probably a lot of different people to really, really uh, ensure that this is scaled up so that it's not just a, the few fortunate living in the few homes that uh, abide by these philosophies, but that it's widespread. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I guess like they say about children, it takes a, it takes a village or it takes a community to raise a child. So with the elderly, it also takes a community (laughs) to ensure their safety and they have joy in these last stages of their life. It's beautifully said. Well, thank you so much. And I'm glad we were able to to get this interview after many attempts. <laughs> and it's so wonderful talking to you. And I really enjoy your book. And may I make a request that can you send me some links of maybe reports and even, you know, residents' homes that are that you have spoke spoke about in your in your book that I can put as links to the podcast. Yes, I, I'll do that this afternoon. Oh, that'd be perfect. So thank you so much. I really love this conversation and I enjoyed your book immensely. And I've actually been recommending your book to anybody that I meet that has an elderly parent. And even if they don't, I say, you know, you should get this book and read this because it you, you you write it in such a way with all these beautiful little stories and the humanity comes through in your storytelling and it makes you want to be a better person and 
and to really be mindful of what's going on in terms of elderly care. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's so lovely to hear. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you and enjoy the, the rest of the day and have a wonderful weekend. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.